Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father, and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. If any of you have explored the many resources that are found in our hymnal, the Lutheran Service Book, you might have come across some pages near the very front that contain some long lists of Bible passages. For each Sunday and for the many feasts and festivals and other special occasions in the church year which might be observed with a worship service, there are assigned Bible readings. Usually one is from the Old Testament, one is from an apostle's letter to the early church, and one is from one of the gospel accounts. These lists are called lectionaries, and the set of readings for any given day is called a pericope. There, I bet you didn't know when you got up this morning you were going to get a vocab lesson, did you? Lectionaries have been around for a long time. You recall when Jesus came home to Nazareth and taught in the synagogue, he was handed the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. This wasn't accidental, this was the assigned reading for that day. Jesus knew what that text was going to be. The lectionary dictated it. Not every Christian denomination uses a lectionary. Of those which follow the worship practices passed down to us from the prophets and the apostles, though, most of them have a lectionary of some sort. Still, there are some variances in which Bible readings they contain. Even within our own Lutheran church body, there are two primary lectionaries which may be used, the three-year and the one-year. Now, mostly hidden away from public view, there's an ongoing debate among pastors about this. One group says that the one-year lectionary is more ancient and more historical and that the repetition of the same texts each year helps to better teach the congregations about some of the essential contents of God's Word. On the other hand, three-year proponents say that having a longer cycle exposes people to more of the Scriptures. It also lets people hear about some of the events in the life and ministry of Jesus from the viewpoints of multiple Gospel accounts. Now, we happen to use the three-year lectionary here at St. Paul, but there isn't anything wrong with the one-year lectionary. More important are the specific benefits of having a lectionary, regardless of its length. For example, a lectionary imposes an external discipline upon preachers. Without it, pastors might choose to only preach from their favorite parts of the Bible, or might choose readings and sermon texts to further their own personal agendas. It's no coincidence that most of the churches that don't use lectionaries are the same ones who believe that the Holy Spirit works apart from word and sacrament. When people believe that the Spirit intervenes directly in people's lives, apart from the governance of the Scriptures, and it's very easy for a pastor to claim that the Spirit led him to choose or to preach on a particular topic or a particular text that day. Pretty soon you'll start to get sermon series that focus not on Christ crucified for our redemption and the forgiveness of our sins and for salvation, but on eight ways to be a better spouse and parent. A wonderful worldly objective, certainly, but not fulfilling the primary mission of the church or addressing the main purpose of Christian preaching and worship. Another benefit of the lectionary is that all the congregations which use the same lectionary are taught from the same readings that day. 
Just like using the same hymnals and the same common shared Christian liturgies creates a theological bond among congregations, so does using a common lectionary. It's certainly not a bond of the same spiritual level as that which we share in the Lord's Supper, but it's a bond nevertheless. There's comfort in knowing that what you are hearing, what you are doing, is being heard and done by hundreds of thousands or perhaps even millions of Christians who have believed like you what is taught and confessed like Christians have done for centuries. You really ought to be able to go on vacation or go away to college and know what to expect when you visit another LCMS congregation for worship. So, why the long introduction on lectionaries, you might be asking yourself. Well, in part, it's me making a confession to you today. You see, for a long time, it's been a tradition in the church that the gospel lesson serves as the sermon text on most Sundays. It's not mandatory. After all, a long gospel can be preached just as well from an epistle lesson or from an Old Testament lesson, too. All of God's Word is still God's Word. I suspect, however, that on this particular Sunday, many pastors are going to elect to preach from the Old Testament or from the epistle lesson. And I have to admit that I was tempted to do that as well. That's because the gospel lesson that's appointed in the pericope for today is a difficult one. It seems to contradict God's plan of salvation and even goes against good Christian behavior. It would be easy to step aside and just kind of let that one pass. Today's gospel lesson is challenging because it appears that Jesus is suggesting that a dishonest person is an example for us to follow. Jesus, Jesus opens this parable with these words. There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said, What is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. Now, fraud is nothing new. Corruption is as old as commerce itself. Whenever fallen sinners engage in any kind of activity, it's part of our darker nature to try to take advantage of others. It's only fear of getting caught and punished in this life, or fear of God's punishment, or hopefully the goodness of the Holy Spirit working in our hearts as believers, that keeps us from lying and cheating and stealing our way to fame and fortune. The fact is, we always want more of God's blessings than what He has chosen to give us through the value of our honest labor. Then we want to hoard every last nickel that we receive for our own purposes rather than for His. Why else do you think that our congregation's offerings are such a tiny percentage of all of our aggregate incomes? It's not because you can't do the math to figure out what 10% of your gross is or that you're so absent-minded that you forget your checkbook 52 weeks in a row. It's because, apart from fear and guilt or genuine faith, we let the temptations of this world lead us to conclude that we deserve any or all of what God gives us. We convince ourselves that our comfort, our pleasure, or our image in the eyes of others, or whatever else it is that we choose to spend our money on, are more important than the proclamation of the gospel to a fallen, dying world. And so we are dishonest stewards of what God's richness gives us. We commit fraud 
and embezzlement and graft with both spiritual things and with earthly things. Several years ago, I worked for an organization that was developing more effective ways of scrambling electronic communications. Now, one particular group in our organization was in charge of developing and testing the equipment. The people in this group were very smart, very creative, very well-trained, very well-paid compared to most. However, it turned out that in order to complete all of the testing that was required, much of this group's work was being subcontracted out to a private company whose fees were far higher per hour than the cost of using internal people. Now, that's not a particularly unusual practice. Organizations often bring in others to handle additional work. What raised suspicion, however, is that in this case, this company was getting more and more of our testing work, while the internal group's workload and staffing didn't seem to be decreasing at all. The leadership of our organization asked me and a couple of colleagues to look into why this was so. What we discovered was that the head of this testing group and a couple of his lieutenants had set up a shell company to which they were subcontracting the testing work, getting paid extra to do what they were already being paid to do. Within a few weeks, there were FBI agents and search warrants and the sound of handcuffs and Miranda rights in our facility. Just like this dishonest manager in Jesus' parable, these people were squandering their master's possessions, using what was already at their disposal to further their own selfish desires. The leader of that scam should just about be eligible for parole around now. When people break the rules like that, when they violate the law and when they mismanage what has been entrusted to them, we expect there to be consequences. They should lose their jobs, go to prison, pay hefty penalties. But that's not what we see happening in Jesus' parable, is it? Rather, we see the dishonest manager develop another clever plot to take advantage of his employer once more. He ingratiates himself with his boss's debtors by writing off part of what it is they owe him. Some have their debts reduced by 50%, others by 20%. Now, we might question the, the fairness of this, wondering why it is that some are forgiven more than others. But this may have just been part of the steward's craftiness. Maybe he knew just how much he had to do for each of them in order to earn their gratitude and to make them more indebted to him than they were to, to his master. How do you think these other businessmen would have reacted to this generosity? It seems that they were unaware of the steward's impending firing, so they might, they might have attributed this surprise to the rich man's generosity. So, not only did the steward earn some goodwill for himself, but he did so for his master as well. Surely only a good and generous man would cancel the debts of those who rightly owed him what the record clearly showed. The shrewd and dishonest manager had painted his employer into a corner, hadn't he? If the rich man later went back to his debtors and said that the steward had no right to reduce the amounts that were owed, then it would look like he had been played for a fool by his employee. They also might be upset at having to come up with the additional money that they thought had been reduced. If he kept quiet, and if he let the reduction stand, however, the whole town would consider the rich man a generous person. The shrewd manager played his cards quite well, 
knowing that his employer was not only compassionate, but also wanted to be respected by others. This worked to his advantage. In the end, the dishonest steward used his position not only for his own advantage, but for the benefit of his boss's debtors as well. He even made his boss look good. So, rather than praising the steward for his dishonesty, the rich man was actually praising him for making a risky, difficult situation work out for the best. The rich man gave him credit for his creativity and his craftiness, not for his dishonesty. The steward had rolled the dice, and his daring plan had paid off. His shrewdness was commendable in that sense. It doesn't mean that the rich man hired him back as his steward, however. Jesus was making the point that worldly people are often far more shrewd in their conduct of worldly affairs than Christians are. It doesn't mean that we believers are less intelligent or less creative or less capable than worldly people. After all, we know the more important truths than unbelievers do. But it does mean that the worldly are often going to look like they're coming out ahead of us because their priorities are different. The worldly seek to impress the worldly, and they care little of the eternal implications. They're more willing to bend the rules or to try to beat the system. That's not what the Lord wants for us. When Jesus says, be as innocent as doves and as shrewd as serpents, he isn't advocating the use of deception and deceit while wearing a veil of naivete. We are to be aware of such practices because we must be equipped and prepared to deal with the evil world around us. It will confront us, but Jesus doesn't want us to participate in it ourselves. I'm thinking that this parable is actually misnamed by those who insert section headings into the Bible. The main point of this story isn't so much the shrewdness of the dishonest manager, but rather the mercy and the patience of the rich man. It's really the parable of the merciful master. He could have legally and rightly demanded that the unrighteous manager pay back his losses or demanded them from the debtors who were misled that the steward somehow had permission for these reductions. The master could have had the steward thrown in jail or even worse. Instead, he gave the man his freedom and he allowed him to enjoy his new relationships with those who liked him for his seemingly generous but actually dishonest actions. Not every aspect of every parable is going to relate directly to the nature of God and man, of course, nor to the actions of God toward man. For example, the rich man in this parable had to be tricked into being merciful. God isn't like that at all. God is merciful by his very nature. The steward and the rich man also were both trying to maintain their honor in this parable. But Jesus surrendered his honor and his glory. He humbled himself to become an incarnate man. He willingly suffered the shame of the cross so that we might not have to bear the shame and the punishment that our sins deserve. Finally, the steward saved himself through his own planning, through his own action. But in Christ, there is nothing that we can contribute to our eternal salvation at all. We are utterly dependent upon God, both for our justification in Jesus' death and in the granting of the faith that clings to that justification for our forgiveness and for the promise of eternal life. 
much like this dishonest steward and the merciful rich man, we usually aren't willing to suffer the humiliation or pay the price and the consequences for our actions or the actions of those around us. But Jesus was willing. And for that willingness, the Father has granted Him eternal glory and honor. Jesus arose from the shame of death, and He ascended to the Father's right hand in heaven, where He now rules all things, now and forever. To those who believe in Him, we have His promise that what is His will also be ours, is now ours, through our adoption and baptism. And all of this will be made complete. All of it will be made full, given to us in the age to come. Like the manager in this parable, when we look at our lives, when we see that we owe a debt of sin we can never repay, we can panic. We can quote along with David and confess with him as he says in Psalm 51, Behold, I was brought forth in sin. In iniquity did my mother conceive me. We have been enemies of God since before we were born. We had a large debt of sin at our births. And we have just been adding to that sin day by day, sin by sin ever since. As we heard at our baptisms though, and as we continue to hear through lifelong catechesis, we would be lost forever if we were not rescued from sin, death, and the power of the devil. Rejoice that you do not have a Lord and a Master who must be manipulated into being merciful. Our God is love and generosity itself. Our good Father gives us willingly all that His treasures give us, even without our asking, and especially without our scheming or without our efforts. We can be glad that we have a God whose mercy is complete. Jesus does not look at our debt of sin and say, take your bill and write 80. He does not even say, take your bill and write 50. His adjustments are infinitely more generous. When an ancient merchant was heaping the books for his business, when a debt was fully satisfied, he wrote the Greek word tetelestai on that bill. This meant paid in full, done, completed, nothing owed, nothing left to do. That's what you need when it comes to your salvation too. When you are called before the judgment seat of God to settle the account of your sinful life, Having your debt reduced from 800 to 400 or from 1,000 to 800 or even from billions and billions down to a handful isn't going to do you much good, is it? It's never going to be enough. Life is not some sort of karma competition that those who accumulate the most good works or those who have the fewest sins or the least severe sins are going to win and be rewarded for you know that if there is even one sin on your account, no matter how minor you might consider it, you're doomed. All sin, any sin, separates you from your holy and infinitely perfect God, and it earns you death and eternal condemnation. You want and you need someone to write to Tetelestai on your account. Thanks be to God. The precious blood of Jesus is enough to eliminate your debt of sin. Not only that, His innocent suffering and death is precious enough in the sight of God to wipe out all the sin of all the sinners from Adam and Eve to the very last day. As Jesus suffered on the cross, just before He bowed His head and gave up His spirit to His Father, the Bible records that Jesus uttered one final word 
to Telestai. It is finished. It is paid in full. Paid for you by Jesus' body and blood. Given for you in Jesus' holy name. Amen.